Hello, my name is Chase Hurt, and welcome to the Chase Hurt Photography Podcast. Today, I will be talking about the relationship between philosophy and photography. In this episode, you will learn more about my practice of photography, and we will explore the bigger questions behind the visual arts discipline together. You and I will observe an unusual game of I Spy and the Pointless Division. So now it's story time. Ever since I got into photography a couple years ago, I have noticed an internal change. I started to see the world more analytically, and I began to channel my instinctual reactions to my environment within the limits of how the camera sees. My experience of a scene became more technical as I began to intellectually consider my newfound awareness of aesthetics, of composition, of light, color balance, and form. However, I sometimes feel that through acquiring this skill, I have disconnected from a pure, unadulterated appreciation of art and of nature. When I see a stunning sunset and feel an urge to take out my camera, I sometimes try to recall what sunsets felt like without that artistic pressure, wondering if my emotional response used to be somehow stronger in my heart than in my head. Arriving at the beach, which is my favorite place to photograph, I have vague memories of a simpler experience, an experience enriched with the soothing crash of waves on the sand and the salty, refreshing breath of the wind. I remember how I used to run with wild abandon up and down the dunes sloping down to the Pacific. Taking out my camera, the sounds and smells of nature fade away, as if I donned a pair of noise-canceling headphones and a gas mask. That's when I'm in the zone. Many regard being in the zone as the best possible thing with endless creative potential, which it is. However, there is more to the story, so let me explain. When I'm immersed in the world of my camera, it is unlike the experience one might have when framing up an iPhone snapshot. It's almost like I have added a new sensory apparatus to my body, which takes precedent over all my other senses except my vision. In this way, it is a peculiar expression of my presence in the moment, for I am in the scene, but not of it. I exist more as an observer than a direct participant in the landscape. To be that direct participant is nearly impossible as a photographer, since we cannot bear to mar the beautiful scene in front of us with our unorderly footprints and other human markers. This whole process makes me wonder just how strong my connection to the landscape really is. Perhaps I am not representing it as it objectively exists, for I cannot fully experience all of its sensory inputs but instead I shape what I see into my particular experience zeroed in on one tiny part of the whole of nature around me. As much as I truly enjoy the practice of photography and wouldn't want to be doing anything else, that doubt still persists. So I turned to the formal art world hoping to find an answer. What I found was a multitude of justifications for versions of my experience aimed at distancing the artist from their instincts. Art elitists would have you believe that a so-called higher intellectual understanding of art is empirically better than the more instinctual appreciation. But I find this hard to believe, both theoretically and at the very least in practice. Perhaps everyone shares a common experience of art, but expresses it in different forms. Whether actively conscious or unconscious, it might be more accurate to leave these levels of appreciation unqualified as better or worse. When it comes to observing a given scene in real life, some are driven to express themselves through capturing and preserving an emotional experience of beauty through technique, and others through a richer internal sensory experience 
without the distraction of the cerebral method. Unsatisfied with the art world's conclusions, and in hopes of fully fleshing out my thoughts, I turned to the relevant ideas of a certain philosopher. In John Stuart Mill's book entitled Utilitarianism, he explains that, according to the greatest happiness principle, one must maximize happiness, meaning intended pleasure, and minimize pain. The creed which accepts as the foundation of morals utility, or the greatest happiness principle, holds that actions are right in proportion as they tend to promote happiness, wrong as they tend to produce the reverse of happiness. Within this general framework, I have found that Mill's distinction between so-called higher intellectual faculties and baser ones is especially applicable to the issue at hand. Furthermore, Mill seems to write with a quote-unquote pleasure bias, stating, It is better to be Socrates dissatisfied than a fool satisfied. Clarifying the differences between pleasures, Mill explains, If I am asked what I mean by differences of quality and pleasures, or what makes one pleasure more valuable than another, I would explain of two pleasures, if there be one, to which all or almost all who have experience of both give a decided preference, that is the most desirable pleasure. We are justified in ascribing to the preferred enjoyment a superiority in quality so far outweighing quantity. This implies that higher pleasures have an inherently more desirable quality where, once one develops a taste for them, they become the only acceptable experience for all situations and outweigh any quantity of lower pleasures. Mill even goes as far as to say that, It is an unquestionable fact that those who are equally acquainted with and equally capable of appreciating and enjoying both do give a most marked preference to the manner of existence which employs their higher faculties, as no instructed person would in ignoramus and can never really wish to sink into what he feels to be a lower grade of existence. My working hypothesis is that this distinction seems to hold for the self-identified art elitist, who believes that their intellectually richer interpretive abilities always produce more pleasure of a higher quality. In other words, the feelings and judgment of the experienced declare their pleasures derived from the higher faculties to be preferable in kind. However, it seems to break down when differentiating between the discrete stages people actually go through when experiencing a piece of art. These stages are firstly, the initial gut reaction, and secondly, the subsequent attempt at analyzing the artwork. This secondary stage usually seeks to determine and make concrete the causes of the initial emotional response. If I had to guess from my own experience, I would assume that people with varying levels of knowledge of art will experience similar first responses, but differ widely in their analysis. So, while Mill's distinction would apparently become irrelevant in the first stage, if there were no difference in initial reactions, as I would guess, it might hold for the secondary stage where their analysis could vary. Though, this presumes that those with an increased understanding of art can have the same impactful and authentic initial reaction and haven't become corrupted by their technical knowledge. By corruption, I mean that perhaps the artist, or even art aficionado's, intellectual understanding tampers with their enjoyment of an instinctually emotional first reaction. Maybe these types of people are habituated to skip right past the first reaction and delve into abstract mental analysis as if to avoid wasting time. 
Mill words this idea of corruption in the following way, asserting, It is indisputable that the being whose capacities of enjoyment are low has the greatest chance of having them fully satisfied, and a highly endowed being will always feel any happiness which he can look for, as the world is constituted is imperfect. In other words, Mill could be wrong that higher intellectual pleasures lead to more happiness of a more refined quality than lower instinctual pleasures for a given quantity. His concern is that when people lose their high aspirations as they lose their intellectual tastes, they addict themselves to inferior pleasures because they are either the only ones to which they have access or the only ones which they are any longer capable of enjoying. Contrary to his position, those who experience more impactful initial responses unburdened by art theory could be experiencing more enjoyment. Who are we to even qualify this enjoyment as of a higher form when it could just as well be the same for all types of art viewers? At the very least, I don't believe that my personal interpretation of an artwork from a technical standpoint leads to some measurable increase in pleasure over the reaction of an untrained eye. While my training could lead to more enjoyment while in the process of creating art, as for me, the practice of discovering how to represent a scene according to my artistic vision is inherently creatively satisfying, it may not have as much of an impact as some may think when appreciating the finished product. It seems that I am usually on the same level of enjoyment with my audience when looking at one of my photographs, although sometimes I will admit that I tend to be biased or blinded to aspects of my work by my pride in the process. So how will I test this hypothesis? Since I only have my own point of view to go off of, I thought it would be illuminating, both for me and for you, to hear from a few other people with different levels of experience. Looking at the same photograph, we will first describe our initial reactions and then delve into the most detailed analysis we can possibly give. Then before I reveal who said what, although my voice might give myself away, you can guess what type of person gave each comment. From this, we will hopefully find out just how similar, or different, people's experiences of art really are, and we may be in for a shocker. For this markedly unscientific experiment, we are going to be using one of my photographs I took in my hometown of Malibu, California. This photograph is a seascape depicting a tide pool and the setting sun. For the interview section of this podcast, these are the questions I'll be asking my participants. First, I'll ask for some information about them. What's your name? How would you qualify your level of experience with art and photography? Then, I'll instruct them to reply however you interpret my questions and at whatever length you feel appropriately expresses your ideas. Question one. What are your first impressions when you see this photograph? Question two. Give me the most detailed analysis possible of this photograph. What is it about the photograph that made you react in a certain way initially? And this is what they had to say. Uh, my name is Ian. Uh, the first thing I see is sort of the swirling eddies of this pool. Um, I think it's pretty, it's pretty startling how this looks. It doesn't really look like um, what I would imagine this to actually look like in real life. So there's some kind of effect going on. Um, some kind of, I don't know, extended period of capturing things. Um, now I'm noticing the sun over the horizon, which is pretty amazing. There's um, some like color gradient coming from the horizon up to the blue. Um, there's a lot of depth, it looks like. 
So we have some foreground parts of the sand and the leaves and um, the water sort of goes back um, along this curved coastline. And then we have the very, very distant is there's some kind of mountain range. At the very far right, there's some kind of settlement, maybe some kind of beach house. So I guess I'm really just noting on what I see. Well, the the thing that really draws my eye is this, um, this sort of like swirling, swirling foam or something, and it's sort of like all converges at a single point in the middle left. And a detailed analysis. I can't really give much of an analysis. I can pretty much only comment on what um, what draws my interest in the photo. Well, I consider my experience with art pretty minimal. I've spent some time in museums, and I've spent a little bit of time thinking about art for certain classes and for other things. Um, my experience with art is probably more geared toward written forms of art. I've spent a little bit of time analyzing poetry. Um, I had a professor once say, a, a poetry professor say that uh, when you're analyzing poetry, the naked eye sees nothing. So if you don't know the techniques and terms, then it's difficult to understand what's going on. So in terms of art and photography, you might say that my eye is naked. Uh, my name is Max. Uh, at the first glance, it made me think of a post-climate change Earth. So I think this mainly because of the fluidity with which the water meets the sand. It feels like it's rising up, almost like enveloping it, like the ocean has gone up a meter or so. Also, the sun in the background has a slight haze to it, which reminds me of uh, CO2 emissions. The photo also feels it has a slight orange tint from the sunset glow, which gives it a post-apocalyptic vibe. The swirling water also looks beautiful, but has some ominous undertones, almost making me suspect chemicals. Uh, the mountains look like they're sliding into the water, uh, which also reminds me of a sort of natural decomposition. Uh, I have a minimal level of art experience, uh, amateur, I'd say. I'd say I have intermediate experience with photography, haven't taken a class, and been interested in automobile photography for some years. Okay, so here goes. When I look at this photograph, first impressions, I see a wonderful swirl in the center, almost reminding me of some sort of tycoon, like a hurricane. And in this tide pool, I see, I see the golden sun and I see the, the teal water, and they're just kind of mixing, but they're separate, almost like they've been centrifuged, like it looks like a centrifuge or something. And I'm mesmerized by the sun, which is just a bright spot in the sky, but seems to radiate outward, filling the scene with light. And I love the swirls and the, and the textures in the water that just remind me of this eternal movement, like if this has been happening for a long time, and you're just standing there watching it. That's my first impressions. So if I had to give a more detailed analysis, well, I'd probably say that the swirl in the center is the focal point. It's the second most brightest part of the image, apart from the sun. So that automatically makes your eye go, go towards it, from hop from the sun to that center swirl, right where your eye wants to go. Also, the sand and the seaweed in the bottom right corner seem to lead your eye into the center of the swirl. And even the flecks of foam that are in that tide pool seem to be moving around towards that swirl. So everything in the image is leading you towards the swirl. I see that the sand is curving around this tide pool, 
and that's isolating this tide pool as like a primary foreground. I see that there's two colors that work together. There's the orange yellow sun and the blue teal water and those colors tend to work well together. That's about it. I mean, it's it's really all about that swirl. It's about the long exposure technique where you're dragging the shutter out for a long period of time because the scene doesn't actually look like this. It doesn't actually swirl in real life, but the swirl was more gradual. And so I see that the long exposure technique made that swirl more apparent and just blurred everything together to focus on the movement. Not the stationary structures of this seafoam, but the movement of the seafoam. And to me, that's really special. My name's Bonnie. Honestly, immediately when I saw it, I th- it reminded me of, like, you know, the Google Earth. And I think it's just because of how, I don't know, just the way that the, is that water? The, yeah, the ocean is portrayed kind of makes it seem like you're looking over Earth from, like, a distance from, like, maybe the moon or something. Really like it. Visually, I find it really interesting because there's like a horizon line, but it's not centered. And then um, that line like divides um, the image. And on the upper half, it's very, seems very like calm and peaceful. But then on the lower half, there's like a lot that's going on um, and it kind of just draws you in. And the colors are also contrasting, you know, like blue and orange. So the hues, um, yeah, I find that really visually appealing. Um, and then something else that I really like is I'm not, I don't, you like don't really even know what's going on with the water. And so I just like keep on staring at it. And it reminds me of clouds almost, but I know it, they're not. I don't know, I think it's just because there's so much going on, but you can't clearly make out what it is. I'm zooming in on the piece right now because there's just so much to see. Yeah, it's almost like you're caught up in the middle of something, like, as a viewer. But also, like, in the photo, it looks like there's a lot going on. There's a lot of movement going on. I just keep on looking at it, zooming in. I like can't tell what it is. Actually, this is so relevant. I'm writing a paper for in challenges right now and I'm talking about like art and A quick note here before Bonnie goes on. She started excitingly telling me about an essay she was writing for class. In this paper, she mentions how Picasso and a local artist like startling the consciousness and I th- it just like so relevant to this piece because the fact that when viewers look at artwork, they want to feel gratified. They need that like sense of like validation that what they're looking at matches like the perception that they have in their head when they're going to view a piece. And I like looking at this piece, I just can't really figure out all the little details. And I think that's why it's really interesting. Um, I would say with art, I'm relatively more experienced than with photography, just because I um, I've been painting for a really long time. Um, I've never taken any formal classes, but. Yeah, mostly just like self-taught and I like putting my work out there. But with photography, experience, but also a lot more to learn, definitely. If you want to see the image we discussed yourself, go to www.imaginaire-media.com slash podcast. That's www.imaginaire.com. 
I M A G I N A I R E dash media m e d i a dot com slash podcast. At this point, I asked Bonnie if she wanted to know what she was looking at, and she said, "Yeah, do tell." Okay. So, what you're looking at right now, this is a photograph、um, of a tide pool, and so the bottom part of the image is actually a tide pool. And the sea foam on that day was swirling with the tide. The tide was incoming,、mm-hmm. and so it was making this tide pool ever increasingly bigger.、Um, almost with every minute, I was having to step、yeah. back.、Um, and this is about a thirty-second long exposure. How do you take it, like the distance? What do you mean? Like, are you on a cliff or something? Or like... No, I'm actually on the sand level. Are you I'm probably、serious? I'm probably about、um, five feet、um, above the sand. On a tripod, pointing、That's、with a wide-angle lens, pointing down,、um, and then whenever you have, whenever you have a wide-angle lens pointing down, you're automatically emphasizing、um, the、oh, the depth, so it makes the foreground look proportionally bigger than the mountains、yeah. in the distance and everything else. It looks like you're from like you're like I almost for a second I almost thought you were like from a plane or something. <laughs> I was like,、yeah. how did he take that photo? I could see that. Yeah, and. These little swirly bits here,、uh, and the things that make up yeah, the central swirl, are sea foam. So these are pieces of white foam. Yeah.、Um, and the tide was coming in with such a force, and happened to be、um, in it, coming in at a somewhat circular motion,、mm-hmm. and so it made all these pieces of sea foam blur together. This is about, I believe, this is around 30 seconds of exposure. And so, with the camera taking an exposure over such a long period of time. You you, know, you don't see the individual pieces of foam、yeah. as they are they, as they structurally are, but you see their movement translated、yeah. by this effect.、Um, and you know this is a, this is a bit of a peninsula, but in reality, this piece of sand in the middle,、um, in the middle between the tide pool and the sun, is miles miles long.、Um, oh, but you just、crazy. can't tell because of the、yeah. perspective. And this tide pool, it, it was quite large. You know, it's probably twenty feet across or something. Fifteen、um, feet across, <laughs> but it looks it looks、yeah. a lot bigger because of the effect. That's crazy. Yeah, and、um, and the sun was also right above the horizon, as you can see. So it made the kind of dramatic shadows,、yeah. which also throws off your sense of texture and balance,、mm-hmm. and it gives that yeah kind of surreal effect. I think. Yeah. So that, that's what's going on. <laughs> Could not have guessed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of interesting. So now that you've just heard the interviews, you are probably wondering about their significance in relation both to the art world and to the bigger moral project from an ethics standpoint. But before we get to that, I want to explain exactly how individual experiences of art, observed through the framework of Mill's ideas, are relevant to the moral project. Here is a quick reminder of Mill's main claim: According to the greatest happiness principle. The ultimate end is an existence as rich as possible in enjoyments, both in point of quantity and quality. The test of quality and the rule of measuring it against quantity being the preference felt by those who, in their opportunities of experience, are best furnished with the means of comparison. For Mill, anything which brings pleasure is tied in with the moral project, and furthermore. If the cultivation of a particular vessel of pleasure leads to an assumed higher quality of pleasure, it is especially morally significant. Since experiencing art brings pleasure, he would assume that the cultivation of an intellectual knowledge of art theory 
and the technicalities of photography would play a key role in augmenting one's personal moral development. However, do the interviews I have just conducted support Mill's conclusion? I don't think so, and let me tell you why. Taking a rather cynical approach, Mill states that, It may be questioned whether anyone who has remained equally susceptible to both classes of pleasures ever knowingly and calmly preferred the lower, though many, in all ages, have broken down in an ineffectual attempt to combine both. Rather, both my testimony and Bonnie's can be considered as proof that those with so-called higher understandings prefer the more instinctual emotional understanding, at least for first impressions. In fact, we commented on many of the same visually stimulating aspects of the photograph as Ian did in his first impressions. Though, for our analysis, Bonnie and I both noted compositional elements, photographic techniques, and color theory. Ian, on the other hand, told me that he could not go beyond his first impressions into analysis. Although Ian's hunch that his analysis would not be as technically complex as ours ended up being correct. So in terms of art and photography, you might say that my eye is naked. This didn't seem to limit his understanding of what he saw in a fundamental way. His naked eye allowed him to see pretty much the same things that Bonnie and I's trained eye saw. Things like the extended period of capture, which we call long exposure, the color gradient, which we would call complementary colors such as blue and orange, and the curved coastline and depth, which we would call leading lines. Sure, Bondi and I were able to pick apart the technical decisions, but all of us reacted to the same scene in a unique and feelings-based way. Ultimately, our trained eyes merely allowed us to express what drew us to the photograph on an emotional visual level in different, perhaps more precise terms. We were not actually understanding or communicating anything dissimilar, or so-called higher, than that perceived by the naked eye. At least in this case, it seemed to be a matter of articulation rather than raw perception. Bonnie and I are just accustomed to expressing what we see through a particular jargon, whereas Ian is accustomed to relying on his gut reaction. However, from my interview with Max, who is a fellow photographer, it is clear that prior knowledge of the theory and techniques of photography did not constrain his creative, highly imaginative interpretation of the photograph. Instead, although he skipped right past quote-unquote standard first impressions, this did not in any way limit his enjoyment of art, as he took up the entire analysis section to describe his otherworldly fantasy inspired by my photograph. The photo also feels it has a slight orange tint from the sunset glow, which gives it a post-apocalyptic vibe. Judging from Max's case, it seems that both classes of pleasures can coexist. They appear to flow within each other, without a clear boundary, across many different individual experiences and inherent natures. Extrapolating from the responses of all of the participants, it is clear that everyone can appreciate art with fundamentally equal enjoyment no matter their background. While people do experience art through different lenses, pardon the pun, it is impossible to qualify one as producing more pleasure than another. Thank you for listening, and I hope you got something out of today's episode. I want to give special thanks to Ian Swain for his insights and interview, Jack Schoen for reading Max Francis's interview segment, Bonnie Chin for her interview, Professor Riley for reading The Voice of Mill, 
Miles Ortiz Green for the amazing music, and Professor Patel for her insightful class on Mill's ideas. If you want to see the image we discussed yourself, go to www.imaginaire-media.com slash podcast. That's www.imaginaire-media.com slash podcast.